Thank you, Lord. Bible is silent, we must be silent. When God opted to dwell in the midst of a burning bush, I don't know that he got the burning bush's permission. He was just there. Other various theophanies, manifestations of God that you see in the Old Testament, I don't know that he got their permission, but what I have found when they built the tabernacle he didn't just show up he waited until the people dedicated that tabernacle and in a sense gave God permission to enter that tabernacle and when he did it was pretty outstanding go read Exodus when Solomon built the temple he didn't just show up there was a sacrifice and there was a consecration that began to take place. In fact, the Bible speaks in the, in the Chronicles that the consecration was so big that it didn't fit in the ground that they had, had, had opted for. They had to hollow extra ground. They had to kind of get bigger. The sacrifice was there. But, oh, when he got permission and he dwelled in that temple, it was pretty outstanding. The Bible says they couldn't even enter power of God filled the place and it's now pleased it pleases God to dwell in the hearts of man that you and I have the opportunity to become that tabernacle that tent that dwelling place of God but to sing it doesn't make it happen you've got to consecrate your life you have to cleanse your life and you have to give him permission. But if you ever give God permission to dwell, you better hold on to your seat. Because when you give him permission, he will come in and dwell in your life. My prayer is exactly what the writer of that song says. Dwell here. Whatever you have to do, whatever has to move, dwell would you lift your voice one more time to God and would you thank him for what we feel through the worship in this place? Would you let the power of God have full reign in your heart? 
Have full reign in your mind. Have full reign in your spirit and in your soul, in your emotions. Don't hold anything back from the dwelling of God's word and God's spirit. Lord, we are going to do whatever it takes. Move whatever out of the way for you to speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Since you're already standing, why don't you turn to the book of John chapter 14 and verse 8. You probably know it. Maybe you don't know it by its, its designation, but as soon as we start quoting it, you'll instantly uh, get there and go, John 14 and verse 8. And uh, it's Jesus' words. If you've got a Bible that records his words in red letter edition. It's going to be in red letters, and it says simply this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Look at your neighbor and says he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. You can be seated. John goes on to say, in, in, in John chapter 8 and verse uh, 32, and I'm going to give you a ton of scripture today. Sometimes I'll quote it. Sometimes I'll paraphrase it. Sometimes I'll read it exactly, but it's all in there, I promise. John chapter 8 and verse 32 says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Back around the 19... No, no, let me, let me back up far on that. Back around the 900s, we don't say that. You know, we always say 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. But back around the 900s, the English court system began to develop the fact that if you had a, a dispute with chattel, that's, that's things that belong to you and cattle, things of that nature. If you have a dispute, you'd have to bring a witness. And so... It seems that around the 900s, at least in English history, that's when witnesses were called to come into the court system and bring their voice. Then around the 13th century, you begin to find the phrase that the English courts began to coin, the, whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that still holds true today. If you go to the court system, it's very possible that one of the, the oaths that you will take if you're called to be a witness, do you promise or do you swear to uphold the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And that's what I want to preach to you today. I want to preach to you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Those of you that might not be real spiritual, you may remember Jack Nicholson's famous line from A Few Good Men. I'm not endorsing that movie. I'm not saying you should, but it's so much included into the canon of English language. He said, you can't handle the truth. Today, I'm pretty confident that this group that's here, you can handle the truth. I'm confident that you came today expecting and believing that your pastor would preach the truth. And I know a lot lately. I, I keep track of all my sermons. I get it. No one has to tell me. I know what I've preached. Even if I don't remember what I preached, I've got record of what I preach. 
I know I preach a lot about Jesus. And lately, I've spent a whole lot of time preaching about Jesus. I've preached about who he is. I've preached about baptism in Jesus' name. And I will not and cannot apologize for that because I have made this church a promise behind this pulpit in this building. When this pulpit was in our other building, I made a promise there. In fact, I made a promise on the very first Sunday that I became pastor in June of 2008. I made a promise that I would not preach anything else except the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Jesus steps on the stage and he said, and I'm, I'm using his own words. These are not the words of a commentator. These are not the words of a spectator. These are the words of God Almighty. He said, I am the truth. So I want to take his phrase and I want to ask you a few questions They're questions that I'm not expecting you to raise your hand and answer, but I am expecting you to answer them in the pew and in your own mind where you're sitting. And when I ask you these questions, I'm asking you in the context of this verse, John 14, 8, I am the truth. So the first question is, do you know the truth? Do you know The truth. Do you know Jesus? Do you know about Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? And some of these are verses I've used over the last couple of months, but I'll say them again. I would bring you to Genesis chapter 3 when it says the offspring of a woman is going to come one day and will crush the head of Satan. That's talking about the truth. I would take you to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the truth. Or I would take you to Matthew chapter 1 and say, Joseph, don't be afraid. I know this is weird. It, it, it goes beyond human comprehension and you're afraid and there's a lot of social stigma. But don't be afraid. That which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the truth. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 promises the same exact thing. It says you're going to call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Joseph, don't be afraid. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the truth. Do you know the truth? If you, if, if you are not a literal person, if you haven't got it yet, the, the, what I'm asking is do you know Jesus? But here's the thing. It's not enough just to know the truth. Do you believe the truth? I know a lot of people that know the truth, and I'm not even talking spiritual. I'm I'm outside of religion right now. I know a lot of people that know the truth but refuse to believe the truth. Do you believe the truth? 
Romans chapter 10 verse 9 through 12 spends a lot of time talking about that you need to believe on Jesus Christ. If you believe on Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And it, it, it kind of keeps hitting that over and over and over. And that is not the end all to salvation, but rather it's the starting point, the focal point, and the foundation. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, throw baptism out the window. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, who cares about the Holy Ghost? If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, rip your Bible up and burn it because it ain't going to matter. Everything starts. Everything hinges. Do you know the truth and do you believe in the truth? See, sometimes as, 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 as Pentecostal apostolics, we love to debate and we love to get people and we want to go straight to Acts 2.38 and we want to go dunk them in the water. But if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, all they're doing is getting wet. If you talk to someone about salvation, would you please start with, do you believe Jesus Christ? Do you believe the words that he has spoken? Do you believe in him? That's where it starts. If they look you in the eye and say, I don't believe in Jesus, then you either got to figure out how to help them believe in Jesus or you dust your feet off and go to someone who does believe in Jesus. It's the crucial part of our salvation. So let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. In John 1, it says in the beginning, and I know I just preached on this, but I'm compelled rather to preach it again. I got, I got home from conference yesterday, and I said, I'm going to try to figure out how to preach. And um, he's running the aisles. Get it, Ethan? I'll take it. I wish somebody else run the aisles a little bit. But, but here's what it says. The, the Bible, so, so I, I know I preached on, on John. I know I preached on Logos. I get all of that. But here's what it is, is the fact that I got up this, or got home from conference yesterday and I sat down at my table and there was nobody at the house and I was just saying, Lord, you're going to have to direct me. I'm, I'm kind of tired. I'm pretty much near exhausted. And, and where do you want me to go? And I had two sermons, if you will, laid out in front of me. Towards the end of the, of, of the day, I still had two sermons laid out in front of me. But early this morning when I got up, made a cup of coffee, I turned my Bible to what I normally, you know, just my normal daily reading, and God said, that's where I want you to be. And so God began to compel me this morning. He said, I know you just preached on it and talked about it, and I know you preached on it at the, the, the uh, 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 the, the park in our outdoor service, he said, but let's do it again. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Skip down a little bit, and the Word became flesh. There was a manifestation of the Word. There was a time and a place where God manifested himself in flesh. Let me show you. Maybe you say, I've heard that all my life, but have you ever connected it to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21? If you have your Bible, why don't you turn there with me? Don't just trust the screen. Don't just trust what the preacher says. See it for yourself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. I'm going to focus simply on the middle verse. I'm going to focus on verse 20. That he, who are we talking about? Jesus. 
that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Absolutely. Was there a purpose? Was there a plan in the mind of God, even before Adam and Eve sinned, that one day there would be a sacrifice that would suffice for everything else? Absolutely. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was not manifest until that that baby was born in a manger, God with us. Turn your Bible with me. I know I've, I use it, but I'm going to tell you, it just, it, it just holds on there. Turn to your Bible to the, book, uh, to the book of Colossians, and we'll be reading in Colossians chapter 1. I want to just go over a few verses there. Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15, that word he, who is he? Well, I'd have to bring you back. I don't have all that time. Just know we're talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you and I, who were alienated, you and I who had left, you and I who had walked away from God's commandments, we're there, but now we've got this hope of the gospel. And let me take you to chapter 2. It says, therefore, verse 6, therefore, as you've received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding always in thanksgiving. And be careful, see to it. That no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition. This isn't about what makes sense. This isn't about what logic may or may not say. This isn't about a tradition that's been handed down for centuries or generations within a religious organization. This is not about empty deceit. This is not according to the elemental spirits of the world, but this is according to Jesus. For in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily. It's Colossians 1.19. It's Genesis 17. It's telling you that there was a moment where God said, I am going to come down to earth and I am going to help them get to the place. Let me show you. It says in you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood stood against us with his legal demands. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. Who am I talking about? The truth. Do you believe the truth? It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That reminds me of John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says there was a light that shone in this earth. 
and this light, the darkness can't quite comprehend it. But, but 2 Corinthians says, God said the light, let light shine out of darkness. He's now shown it in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. When Peter, when John, when Andrew, when the Syrophoenician woman, when Mary, when they looked at Jesus... They were seeing the light that was promised in John chapter 1. When they looked on the face of Jesus, they were seeing the glory of God. But I need you to remember with me in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. All scripture is given uh, to us. We, We don't just pick and choose. We don't just take one scripture out and throw it away. I get really upset when people take one little bitty scripture that pertains to God's salvation and make that the end all. There's a whole lot about God's salvation. In hyphen class, we talked a little bit about that, but did you know that in in Romans chapter 13, it tells us that we have to obey the government? Did y'all know that? My hyphen class knows that. And if we're going to get mad at other people that take one verse and forget all the other ones, we got to be careful. We don't just take one verse. So I'm just telling you what I told high class. we got to obey our government. you got to pay your taxes. Taxes get 58%. you still got to pay them because the Bible says so. Now, when the government tells you to do something that goes against the command of God, then we'll talk about that a little bit later. Peter said, you can command me not to preach, but I'm going to have to preach. You can put me in jail. That's fine. I get it. I'll submit to you and I'll face the consequence, but I have to preach the word of God. But he would have also said I have to pay my taxes. So we can't just say, oh, the New Testament throws everything out of the No, it all works together. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, period, end of discussion. God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. You're not allowed to worship anybody but the one true God. You're not allowed to give to anything but the one true God. You're not allowed to to, to give that praise to the one true God. But I find it interesting that the angels, who their entire job is to be around the throne and worship that one true God, when Jesus was born, they stepped to the bow of heaven and they pointed their face, if you will, down to earth and they begin to worship one on earth for the very first time. Why? I would tell you this because Galatians and 2 Corinthians teaches us that Jesus is the glory of God and if God doesn't share his glory then it can only happen if Jesus is the manifestation, if Jesus is God robed in flesh, if Jesus is God become flesh, if Jesus is the supreme revelation of an invisible God. I'm just talking about the truth. But it's even not enough for you just to know the truth. It's not even enough for you to believe the truth. What are you going to do about it? I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh, justified or vindicated in the spirit. He was seen of angels, preached on to the Gentiles, proclaimed to the nations, believed on in the world, taken or received up 
into glory. It's why Jesus could say in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But John chapter 4 teaches us that God is a spirit. And then Luke 24, 39 says a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Now, I'm, I'm not the greatest theologian, and I'm not real good with the English language. My wife makes fun of me because I, I tend to misspell stuff, and I don't know where the commas are supposed to go. To me, commas go everywhere, but my dad says that's not true. and My grammar ain't all that. But I do know this. If God is a spirit, a spirit cannot have another spirit. So you don't have God and a separate spirit existing somewhere in the annals of heaven. So thus, God, the creator of all things, the father of all things, is also called the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. It's the same thing. God is a spirit. When the Bible Reads, especially like in the book of John, when the Bible begins to refer to God as Father, we're referring to God Almighty who was before time began and before creation happened, but he's able to just speak things into existence. He's able to birth things into existence. God, the one that created everything that's ever been, the Father of all. But that spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. The Bible tells us there's only one thing that can atone for our sins, the blood of a sacrifice. And so God one day manifested himself in flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among his creation, walked among mankind. And if you will, and here's what we have to understand, we're getting pretty close to that, that demon holiday uh, 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 Halloween. I can't even hardly say it on the pool platform. It's a Halloween thing, you know. And uh, we never celebrated Halloween, but I celebrated the candy you got at Halloween. Is that fair enough? <laughs> but uh, you got to be very careful. God didn't just robe himself in flesh. God didn't go down to the spiritual Costco or Sam's and find a pretty cool costume and just put a costume on so he looked like man. That's not what it means. It means that the God of all universe became man. He had the exact same number of bones you have in your body. He has the exact same number of teeth that you would have started with. He had hair on his head. Every physical function that humanity has, he became flesh. And on the cross, God did not die because God cannot die. What died was the humanity. This doesn't, I mean, every analogy will break down at some point. I get that. But you could take a balloon, and I could blow that balloon up. And what's in the balloon is also what's outside the balloon, air. And air is everywhere. And that's how it is with God. He is everywhere at all times and at all places. And when God became flesh, he did not define or confine himself into one five foot seven foot tall man and then the rest of the universe didn't have God around him. 
God became flesh. It's like that balloon. That balloon represented the humanity. And it was that on the cross, the balloon popped. Again, I realize that analogies will break down if you take it too far. But on the cross, the balloon died. But the air is still there. Who am I talking about? The truth. And so it was that he manifested himself in flesh. He became flesh. He gave himself. God Almighty gave himself flesh and blood so he would have the ability to silence once and for all sin's demands. It's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.19, it's by the precious blood of Christ. The reason we baptize is because it represents and it connects us to the blood that was shed on Calvary. The blood that atones, rather, atones from every sin and every shame and everything that we've done wrong. The blood doesn't lose his power. So it is that when we use the term When the Bible uses the term Father, it represents God. It represents His deity. It represents that that untouchable, uh, everywhere, all-powerful God. But when you read the book of John and you see it talk about the Son, it's representing the humanity of Jesus. Let me put it to you like this. As humanity. Remember, Jesus was fully human, just like you and I. It's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this, but Jesus had to learn to walk. God of the universe. Mary had to hold his hand and let him take those first steps. Jesus had to, in a sense, learn to eat. He had to be weaned. Give him the bottle and burp him because he was fully man. As humanity, Jesus hungered. He thirsted. But as God Almighty, Jesus could take bread and feed thousands. Or he could sit on the well and the same humanity that thirsted and hungered, the divinity, God Almighty manifest in Jesus would look at that woman at the well and says, I am that living water you can drink and never thirst again. Or he could say, I am the bread of life that I preached about a few Sundays ago. I am the bread of life. As as son, as humanity, Jesus slept in the boat. He's tired. I was tired. I'm tired. But as God, as God manifests in the flesh, Jesus stepped on the bow of that boat and he said, peace be still. And the waves fell over themselves to lay out a smooth carpet because the God of the universe just spoke. As son, as humanity, Jesus cried in the garden in such agony that it bled from his forehead. And he said, I'm not ready for this. I don't want to die. It's going to hurt. I know what's coming. Oh, if it would, Father, let this cup pass from me. But as God, as God manifest in the flesh, Jesus is the answer to every prayer you'll ever pray. When you pray in Jesus' name, demons flee. When you pray in Jesus' name, darkness has to subside. When you pray in Jesus' name, then you have the healing that you need. Why? Because he's God manifest in flesh. I'm just talking about the truth today. 
me look at three scriptures, if you will. Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, John chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 24. This is contained within the sermon that Peter preaches after the day of Pentecost. John, or, or rather, Acts chapter 2, verse 24. It says that God raised the body of Jesus from the dead. I'm glad he's no longer in that tomb. I, I assume we know where he's buried. Sometimes I wonder who knows, but here's the thing it's just an empty tomb. He's not there because Acts chapter 2 says God raised him from the dead. But Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then John throws another monkey wrench in it because John chapter 2, I believe it's verse 19, Jesus said, you see these stones of the temple? You can knock them all down and in three days I'll raise them back up. They didn't know he was talking about the cross and the crucifixion. So either the Bible has a problem trying to put it all together because one verse says God raised him from the dead. The other one says the Spirit raised him from the dead. And one says Jesus raised himself from the dead. So either the Bible is confused or we're talking about a one true living God. It's the, that, that, that phrase, that, that Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But it's not enough just to believe. James 2.19 says you believe in God, you believe in the oneness of God. That's great, awesome. The devils believe and they shudder, they tremble. So here's the thing. If you, if you know the truth, even if you believe in the truth, you're just as good as the devil. That's as far as you got. So the next question is this. Do you know the truth? Do you believe the truth? And do you follow the truth? In fact, I could put it this way. Do you obey the truth? Who's the truth? Jesus. Do you obey Jesus? Matthew 28, 19 tells us we need to be baptized in the name. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 says that name is Jesus Christ. Acts 4 and 12 says for there is salvation in no other name for there, or, or in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Why do I make such a big deal about being baptized? Why do I make a big deal about repenting? Why do I make a big deal about the infilling of the Holy Ghost? Because I'm following the truth. That name of Jesus is powerful. Acts 4 says there's salvation in his name. But John 20 says there's life in his name. And Proverbs 18 says there's a place in his name. His name is a strong tower the righteous run into and are saved. And, Pro and, and Mark chapter 16 says in his name is power. There's, there's deliverance. There's healing. There's, there's, it's Jesus. And watch this. Jesus is not a way. Jesus doesn't show us the way. Jesus is the way. In fact, I would tell you he's the only way. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so I could, and I'm not going to keep preaching this forever, but I could, I could flip it and ask you a couple other questions. 
Not only do you know the truth, not only do you believe in the truth, not only do you follow the truth, but do you know the way? Are you following the way? Any men, those of you of the masculine male gender, ever just kind of yell at the GPS in her annoying voice and say, I don't care that you want me to turn there. I'm going this way. I do. Every once in a while, I know more than she knows. Not my wife. I'm talking about the Siri girl or whatever on Google Maps. Make that clear. Because every once in a while, GPS gets it wrong. Jesus said, I am the way. And I don't have the privilege, I don't have the authority, I don't have the ability to go any other way than the way. I am the truth. I am the way. When you think of it that way, when you look at it in terms of this simple phraseology and look at it, it brings a whole nother um, understanding to are you lost? We'll use that. Are you lost? We'll talk about I'm saved. I'm no longer lost. Well, if you're lost, it's because you don't know or you don't follow the way or you haven't found the way. Jesus. And then he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And I guess my question is, have you been baptized in the truth? Have you been baptized in the way? Have you been baptized in Jesus? There is only one way to be baptized. Jesus himself said, there's one Lord. There's one God, if you will. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Put that, that slide up. Whoever's back there, Brother Tim, Brother Addie, Sister Addie, rather. What you see right here is the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 11th edition, that came out around 1910 to 1911. This is not a picture I found off the internet. I've seen these exact same books in the home of a friend of mine. I'm going to buy me a set. They're kind of expensive. They're antiques and they're kind of expensive. But I'm determined I'm going to own the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Because if you go get the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 11th edition from 1910-1911, and you turn, and these are the exact pages that are found, and he has it open in, in page 365 and 366 under the, the heading Baptism. And it takes up almost, if not all, of those two pages. And so I'm summarizing. But it will tell you this. That all of the apostles baptized in the name of Jesus by immersion. That's what Encyclopedia Britannica 1911 series says. And then if you go on and it's, it's, it's right around here. In the third century. Baptism in the name of Christ was still so widespread that Pope Stephen, in opposition to Sapphirian of Carthage, declared it to be valid. But then if you keep going over here, 
you'll find that the baptismal formula was changed. And I'm not making fun. I'm not trying to cause a debate. I'm telling you truth. The baptism formula was changed in the second century by the Catholic Church to a triune name, the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. And they also changed it from immersion to sprinkling. I'm not following man. I'm not following a religion. I'm not following a doctrine. I'm not following the, 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 what, what man's logic says. I'm following the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the life. And as you stand in this building today, I ask you this question.